morning, everyone. Uh, we'll have the, uh, Brianna has the Bible verse from Philippians 1, 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So <clears throat> Mark is going to use that as his uh, scripture verse this morning. And I look forward to, to his presentation about how Christians respond to the upcoming election. So we look forward to that later this morning. Uh, I don't know if, if uh, you guys have had a chance to look at the CUC newsletter that came out Friday, but I had several items uh, under my topic of notes. And uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up is uh, this today uh, at five o'clock, there will be a service outside, weather permitting, uh, on the commons. Uh, the gates uh, will open at 4.30, so if you feel like coming to the church, uh, bring your chairs or blankets, uh, uh, and they will, uh, as you come in, I, what I understand, you will be, uh, temperature will be taken, and then you will be directed to an area where you can set up your, your chairs or your blanket, so... Uh, that's today at uh, 5 p.m. Uh, also, I saw in the Friday Blast that they're going to plan uh, two Friday night out events in October, one on the 16th and one on the 30th. And I think the church plans the 30th to be a fall festival. So more details will be coming out, but uh, Keep an eye on the Friday Blast and our newsletter for more information. The second item that I put in the newsletter was talking about returning uh, to the church for Sunday school. The, uh, the church is planning for that to happen starting on the 1st of November. And what I ask each of you to do, if you plan to attend or plan to come to the church, please send me a short email announcing that. So if you haven't read this in the newsletter, please do so. And only those who are planning on coming back, if you're not, if you're going to stay on Zoom, you do not need to send a reply. So far, so far I've only heard from two different people. So uh, I would uh, ask you to Respond to that if you're coming back to church so that we can look uh, and determine what type of seating and distance we need in our Sunday school class. Also, during the month of October, we're going to need to uh, get some training from Doug on how to set this up and how to make this work so that we're, we have both Zoom and live uh, at the same time so that we can all be together. The third item I wrote about was the Malone Dotson Golf Tournament, which comes up on October the 12th. So <clears throat> we're less than two weeks away from that. And just to remind everyone that this is the foundation's only source of budget funds uh, to run the foundation. So please consider uh, some way that you might have 
uh, might participate in this by giving away something. I, I put a few ideas in the newsletter, but uh, please, if you uh, have an opportunity or you have something that you feel like you could uh, donate for the silent auction, please do so. And obviously, if you want to play, uh, there's still time to do that. So turning to prayer requests, uh, again, we would please continue to include Jim Adcock, Myra Belote, Pat Deaton, Malone and Charlotte, Jeannie Elders, Mary Kay Mills, and also uh, Sharon Snackenberg's family and friends, Deidre Morrison, who sister of Vince, Susan Orts, a family friend of the Grosses, Linda Tipples, and I heard this morning, Julianne Goodson needs to be in our prayers too, so please include her. Continuing prayers for Dick Anthony, the Coonies, uh, the Gays, Shirley May, Edna Smith, Pat Stamps, and Stan and Virginia Thomas. Also another item uh, with, that was in the newsletter is the mission booth that RUMC has. If you have some articles to sell, uh, please look at, again, the newsletter. There are two points of contact. If you've got questions, Ann Gordon or Annette Whaley, you can give them a call uh, if you've got some questions regarding that. Birthdays, Barbara Zellner, Debbie Goodwin, Stan Tomlinson, Dave Taylor, and Dal Zur. Barbara's uh, birthday is today. I don't know if she's on the Zoom, but uh, if she is, happy birthday, Barbara. Uh, and anniversaries, none this month. So George Waite has our prayer this morning. So George, I'll turn it over to you. And then after that, Mark, the, the program will be yours. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Let's be in a spirit of prayer and let's think about all the things that we are thankful for. First of all, let's look at our scripture, a scripture in which Jesus taught his disciples to pray and also the Jesus followers on how to pray. Found it in Matthew 6, and this is the way it goes. This then is how you should pray. This is Jesus talking. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we have often failed to give you the praise for the beauty of the day, for the blessings that we have all received. You have been so good to us. You have formed the earth and made us in your image. God, we thank you and praise you. Now give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we have done things we shouldn't have done, but we have also failed to do things that we should have done. Forgive us, O Lord. You have heard our prayers, prayer requests in our newsletter and, and here, both those prayers that have been spoken and those that are unspoken. And we pray that your will be done in each of these lives. Now, be with Mark as he brings the lesson today and also with our nation and with those who are involved with 
with uh, having the COVID-19 uh, virus. May we hear the words from Mark that has been laid upon his heart. Open our minds and that we may receive your blessing. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, class. Um, I hope you can hear me okay. If you can, would you raise your hand? Okay, good, good, good. Uh, I'm going to jump right in. Um, back in August, Debbie and I received a phone call from uh, a person asking if we would be willing to teach Sunday school lessons for the Berean class. And uh, naively, we immediately said yes, because we enjoy teaching. And uh, we've taught in that class several times. And then the one calling us said that she wanted us to teach the Sundays immediately before and after the November election. And she said, I want you to talk about how we should respond to these elections as Christian. And since she reminded us that in all of our Sunday school classes, we have people with radically different opinions about who should be elected. And I said, really? You gotta be kidding. That's like walking through a minefield with a blindfold on. I mean, who would do that to a friend? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, well, she really is right to ask someone to uh, address this issue as Christians. Um, we're all struggling with how to respond to those who hold different views than we have about this election. And I don't have to tell you that in every Sunday school class, there are wonderful, wonderful people who hold very different views about how we should be voting. And we're all struggling with how do we respond to these politicians, these local politicians, these state politicians, these national politicians that, uh, you know, there's some, we just, frankly, let's just be honest, we don't like them. We don't like their policies. We don't like what they're trying to do. And I suspect there are probably two or three of you who could identify with me. When I think about the ballot that we're going to be using, I, I, I'm probably gonna be looking for something that says, uh, where is the place that says none of the above? Uh, just kind of like, you know, what do we do? So I enter this lesson uh, with fear and trembling with the full awareness that some of you are gonna be very excited about the election results. I have no idea what that's gonna be, but you're gonna be very excited about it. And some of you are gonna be pretty upset about it. But hopefully all of us can agree that there's one thing we all have in common, and that is that we have an authority above us who is more powerful, more wise, and more worthy of our allegiance than any government official. For we are citizens of a kingdom that is far more enduring, far more important than any political party or any politician. So that being said, I hope you'll agree that it really doesn't matter what I think or what you think, but rather it really does matter what he thinks. So with that in mind, what does God say in his word about these issues that we're struggling with? How do we respond to that person in power? They're over us. And frankly, we don't care for them. And we certainly don't like some of their decisions and their attitudes. And that may be a politician at the local level or the state level or the national level. But I want to just stop right here. And I want you to take a deep breath and relax. Because I'm not going to be telling you this morning to vote for a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent. So don't get nervous that I'm gonna get all political on you or that I'm gonna get all weird. 
well, I might get a little weird, but, <laughs> but be nice to me anyway. It's, it's called grace. We tend to forget that the writers of the New Testament lived under the authority of political leaders that, well, they'd make our leaders look like saints. And they didn't get to vote on those leaders. And they didn't get to have any political influence whatsoever. So I want you to think about this. The New Testament that we cherish was written in a context where the political leaders had participated in the murder of Jesus. And they viewed these followers of Jesus as a bunch of weird cult members. And they certainly didn't trust them. They didn't like them. And they didn't see them as being worthy of any protection or any benefit. Don't ever forget that on the day that Jesus was born or after that he was born, um, he was always seen as a threat. He was seen as a nuisance to those in power. Remember, King Herod literally tried to kill him and in the process massacred numerous innocent kids under the age of three. So my point is this, never forget that Christianity was born, and this is what's amazing, was actually thriving in a context of corrupt in, uh, and horrible political leaders. So we cannot blame the failure of today's church and its lack of growth and its lack of influence. We cannot blame that on political leaders. We cannot blame it on politics. I find it intriguing, but I also find it instructive that not once in the New Testament have I been able to find an instant where followers of Christ responded to the political leaders by calling for protest or seeking to have the politicians destroyed or calling on the church to unite against a ruler. Now, you can argue that times are different today, but I think we should learn from those first century believers who were treated so terribly by the government, yet they thrived. Their numbers grew exponentially, and believe it or not, they were filled with joy. Can we say that about the American church today? I don't think so. So let's examine, let's just start off in a negative way here. Let's examine some of the snarky, sarcastic, and bitter responses from the first century followers of Christ, okay? Let's start there. Here's the problem. There are no such responses, none. So since we can't find any of those kind of responses, let's see if we at least can find some kind of responses. So let's begin with the apostle John. As you know, he wrote what we call the Gospel of John. We also think he wrote three short letters that we attribute to him, and we know that he wrote the book of the Revelation. Now, when he wrote the book of the Revelation, he was being, he was being treated extremely unfairly. Here are his own words, okay? I quote him from Revelation 1.9. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Now, as I scanned these five books written by John in preparation for this lesson, I kept looking for some examples of him complaining about his unfair treatment and how terrible and unjust he was being treated. I couldn't find any. What I did find was as this man grew older, he increasingly talked about love, not revenge. He didn't even talk about social justice. He was obsessed with the message of loving God, loving fellow believers, and even loving those who hated. And as I continued to review his life and his unbelievable attitude, I was reminded of something that I personally wrote 
in my Bible at the beginning, at the top of the Gospel of John, in the margin at the top there. And this is what I, I wrote. And every time I read this Gospel, I, I look at this and it's like, oh, I need to be reminded of this. This is what I wrote. Never forget that this man of love endured having his brother James murdered by King Herod. Only the power of God could transform a man like you might want to write that something like that at the beginning of John, just to remind you every time you read that gospel, this is the context it was written in. Now, how could he not be bitter? How could he not be filled with revenge toward the politician who had viciously murdered his brother simply because he thought it would be a nice way to score some political points with his constituency? So how do we know that this was a political act on the part of, of him? How do we know that? Well, listen to Acts 12, one through three. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. And when he saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. So how in the world do we explain John's unbelievable? I don't know it of any other explanation than simply only the transforming power of the Holy Spirit can keep a man like John from being bitter, resentful, and filled. Only the Holy Spirit can fill his heart with this kind of love and joy. Would you agree with me that today's church, including you and me, are desperately in need of such transforming power? I don't know about you, but I'll have to confess to you that I am too frequently guilty of a trying to accomplish kingdom priorities by human means. And I have to acknowledge that, you know, the biggest need we have today, it's not new legislation. Now, I'm not saying legislation is not important, it's very important. But our biggest need today is new hearts, hearts transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look for a moment at another of the early church leaders. This is a leader that people said of him that when he came into a town, there was either a revival or a riot. It was always different when he showed up. And he was never accused of being bashful. I'm referring, of course, to the Apostle Paul. You, know, you talk about a man who had a reason to be angry, a reason to be bitter about how he was being treated by politicians. It would be Paul. Listen as he gives a summary of how he has been treated by both secular politicians and religious politicians, both. Listen to what he says. It's his own words from 2 uh, Corinthians 11. He says, I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once I was stoned. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced dangers from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believed, but they're not. I've also worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing. To... Well, when a man has that kind of commitment to his beliefs, I think I ought to listen when he speaks. So I want to examine just a few of his instructions to his fellow Christians regarding how we should respond to politicians and others who might treat us unfairly. This is from Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Listen to this. Above all, he says, you must live as citizens of heaven 
conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then when I come and see you again and or only hear about you, I know you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that you're going, that they are going to be destroyed, but that you're going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also, this is a weird word, the privilege of suffering for him. I've never seen suffering as a privilege of you. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. And then he says in Colossians 4, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Now, if you were sitting in prison because you were falsely accused, what prayer request would you send to the CUC Sunday School class? What would your prayer request be? Would you talk about how unfairly you've been treated? Would you let the class know how terrible the politician is who had this terrible thing done to you and had you arrested? Would that be the focus of your prayer request? Well, here's Paul's prayer request in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 4. He says, we ask you to pray for us. Pray that the Lord's message will spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes. Just as when it came to you, pray too that we'll be rescued from wicked and evil people for not everyone is a believer, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. Now it's when Paul writes to the young pastor by the name of Timothy that I am just frankly blown away. I want you to listen to his instructions to this young pastor that he's mentoring. He says, I urge you, first of all, pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. You're doing okay so far. And then he says, pray this way for King and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Now, this is what pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Now, this is amazing. Did you understand what he's saying there? We are not to pray against our politicians, but we are to intercede on their behalf and give, this, this blows me away, and give thanks for them. Now, I'm having, I'm having trouble with that one. Give thanks for them. Really? But why? Verse four, God, our Savior, wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. I don't know about you, but that passage really convicts me. For I have to ask myself the question, do I view politicians that I don't like as people whom God loves? And do I see them as people that he is seeking to redeem? And do I join with Christ in praying for their sake? Do I really believe that they're deeply loved and valued by God? And am I part of his kingdom efforts to see that they come to know Christ? I have to confess. I really have had to confess and confront that I desperately need help in this area. But aren't you glad that we serve a God like him? I mean, if he can take a murderer like Saul and transform him into an apostle named Paul, then maybe, just maybe, he can transform me and you. Let's look at one more leader if we could in the New Testament. Now, this is a man who was also put in prison, and he also was treated terribly. And I'm referring to the apostle Peter. 
Here are his instructions regarding how we should respond to politicians. Listen to this, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. For the Lord's sake, Submit to all human authority, whether the king as the head of the state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you're God's slave. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Now, here's a, here's a tough one. Are you ready? And respect the king. Now, that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Look at the context. Who is the king in power at the time that this was written? Most likely, it was Nero. And if you know anything about this character, you know that he was exceptionally cruel. He was treacherous. And also remember that roughly 30, 35 years earlier, cruel politicians had been complicit in the murder of Peter's Lord and Savior, Jesus. So when we read these words from Peter in this context, once again, we have to ask the question, how in the world could Peter not be bitter and filled with rage toward those who are politicians? I mean, how could he not be angry at them? So again, we have to acknowledge that only the transforming power of Jesus Christ can make a man like Peter respond in this way. Never forget that it was Peter who was the one in the garden on the night of, uh, of Christ's arrest. Remember what he did? He pulled out a sword and he was attacking those who were mistreating Jesus. He, was, he wasn't going to take their abuse, but something has happened. A change has happened in his heart and he's radically different than he was. But here's something I struggle with. How could he even mention the word respect? in the same sentence with a horrible politician. Like, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. What does it mean to respect someone you don't agree with and who has totally different viewpoints than you do? How do you respect someone who is so disrespectful of other people? I saw an amazing example of this when I lived in Portland, Oregon. You've all heard a lot about Portland in the last few months, and uh, it, it hasn't been good. It's really sad what's happening. And the mentality of some of the local city officials is just utterly baffling to me. And frankly, it, it's been quite destructive. But when I lived there just a few years ago, the mayor at that time was a man by the name of Sam Adams. Now, he's not the mayor they have today. But like the mayor they have today, Sam was extremely liberal. And he made a point of pushing his liberal views to the point of creating lots of resentment among those who had different opinions and different views. And frankly, he didn't have the most favorable view of Christian and especially preachers. You may or may not know this, but in that town is a worldwide known evangelist in Portland, actually the headquarters in the suburb called Beaverton. But uh, there's a well-known evangelist who lives there by the name of Luis Palau. And uh, he's well-known around the world, especially in South America. Now, Luis is fairly conservative, okay? Luis was prompted by the Holy Spirit to reach out to Sam Adams and seek to be his friend. <laughs> and some of Luis's friends weren't real sure about this. And some of the mayor's friends weren't real sure about this. Well, to make a long story short, Louise Palau and Sam Adams became very good friends, as hard as that might be for you to believe. Louise created a number of ministries that linked local churches with local public schools. 
Now that was possible because the local school system was just in a mess and was desperately short of funds. And they weren't even able to keep up with basic maintenance, like mowing the lawns and trimming the shrubs on the campuses. I mean, it was a mess. Our church, the church that I was pastor of, had the privilege of participating in those partnerships. And we adopted a school and uh, we did lots of improvements there. And that ministry continues until this day. I was blown away at a meeting I attended that was hosted by Louise Palau. He invited Sam Adams to come and address a group of us pastors. I had no idea what he was going to say. Well, Sam shared with us with great emotion that he had recently attended a conference of fellow gay mayors and had shared with them his new partnership with Luis Palau. He laughed about the response of the other mayors. They were literally dumbfounded that he would have anything to do with this conservative evangelist whose beliefs were so diametrically opposed to his. And he went on to share that his friendship with Louise had become extremely meaningful to him and had become very important. So I asked him, how did such, how could this be possible? Louise gave him respect, even though he strongly disagreed with some of his policies, some of his decisions that he was making. Now, I'm not saying that either man ever changed their political views. They didn't, okay? But to this day, I guarantee you that if Sam Adams needs a friend to call on, Luis Palau will be at, toward the top of the list. Now, this is the whole point that Peter is making. We cannot minister to people and disrespect them at the same time. Can I repeat that? We cannot minister to people and disrespect them at the same time. We don't have to agree with them. In fact, we may violently disagree with them, but we're called by the grace of to love them. They may actually hate us, but we cannot allow their attitude to determine our attitude. And we cannot allow their response to determine our response. So in the time that we have remaining, I wanna deal with what I see as some of the implication of what we have been looking at this morning. You may or may not agree with everything that I have concluded, but at least consider the following, okay? First of all, never forget who we represent. As followers of Christ, we bear his name, and we're to never bring dishonor or shame to his holy name. As we were told earlier in the day, we are to pray daily, hallowed be your name. May your name be held with holiness, with respect, with honor, and may that be shown in our life. The second thing, as followers of Christ, we're citizens of heaven, and we are to reflect that in our behavior and in our responses, and we are to pray over and over again, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was A.W. Uh, Tozer who said, the curse of the modern Christian leadership is the pattern of looking around and taking our spiritual bearing from what we see rather than from what the Lord has said. The third thing, politicians matter to God. Jesus died and rose again that they might be saved. And I need to treat them as his creation and join him in seeking their redemption. The next thing, we give them respect not because they deserve it. Often they don't. 
but because we represent one who has commanded us to respect them, like forgiveness. Respect is given as a gift of grace. It is not earned. I have to be reminded of that over and over. The next thing, should we ever be forced to choose between obeying a political leader and disobeying God, we always choose God. Always. Peter makes it clear in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now, listen carefully to the next one before you jump to a conclusion. We don't need more protest, but rather more proclamation. There were riots in the New Testament, but they were never by Christians. Rather, they were often because Christians had the audacity to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Now, I'm not speaking against protest. Don't go there. I'm not, I'm not speaking against it, but I am speaking against the lack of the proclamation of the gospel. There's not enough of that. The next thing, we need a revival of intercession for our political leaders. The early church truly believed that intercessory prayer was essential. It was not, a, it was not an accessory. It was essential. And this is the point I, I want to make. Did you know that it is hard, if not impossible, to hate someone that you sincerely intercede for. You cannot intercede for someone and continue to hate them. Perhaps we need to begin with a confession of our neglect in this area. The next point, we need a revival of joy within the church. The political leaders of the first century were utterly baffled by the joy that the early believers exhibited. And this joy, even in the midst of persecution, came not from their circumstances or their good fortune, but from a dynamic relationship with the risen victorious. And the final point, never forget that we are called to be light in the midst of darkness. We should never fear or curse the darkness, but rather confidently reflect the light and character of the one who shall reign forever and ever. I close with some advice from John Wesley, and then some advice from a group of Orthodox Jewish leaders. The first advice is from John Wesley. And he gave this advice to some of his parishioners when they were in the midst of a heated political election, okay? And his advice is as valid today as it was when he gave it October 6, 1774. This is what he said. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, number one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And number three, to take care of their spirits, that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. I think we could use that advice today, don't you? And then finally, I was impressed with a letter I saw just two months ago. This was written by a group of Orthodox Jewish leaders, and they concluded their letter with this uh, advice, quote, when we vote, Let's do so as Torah Jews, with deliberation and seriousness, not as part of any partisan bandwagon. We're not inherently Democrats or Republicans, conservatives or liberals. We're Jews in the voting booth, no less than in our homes, who are committed in the end only to Torah. So allow me, if you would, to read those same words again, but let me this time address them to you as Christ followers. Listen to this. When we vote, let us do so as followers of Christ with deliberation and seriousness, not as part of any partisan bandwagon. 
We are not inherently Democrats or Republicans, conservatives or liberals. We're followers of Christ in the voting booth, no less than in our homes, who are committed in the end only to Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in need of your grace, your mercy, and yes, your forgiveness. For I, and I'm sure others here too, have said things and responded in ways to politicians that did not honor you. Forgive us, I pray. May we be people of mercy, grace, joy. So we obey your command this morning and we pray for our political leaders. We begin with our president, President Trump, who is very ill today. And we ask that you would be with he and his family and the members of his family and the members of his administration. I pray your touch would be upon him. Your blessings would rest upon him. I pray for Joe Biden and his family, his associates. May he too be protected by you and blessed. Father, I pray for the Christians across this nation. Open our eyes to your mercy and remove from us anger and rage and bitterness. May we become people who reflect the values of your kingdom. And may we pray for those that persecute us. Pray for those who speak evil of us. And may we never be guilty of saying anything evil against our fellow Christians who perhaps feel different than we do about issues. May we be united in you, not in our political views, but in you. May we rejoice in you and may we find peace in you this day, I pray in Christ's name. Thank you, Mark. I know that was, I think that was a tough uh, subject, uh, but I appreciate your uh, going through that. We're so, so uh, thankful to have you and Debbie as part of our Sunday school class. Your, your presentation is spot on. I think we as Christians need to be reminded of how we should respond as Christians. It's, it's a very volatile time with this corona on top of uh, the election coming up, and we need, to, we need to be aware of that. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for that presentation. Mm-hmm.